It's Tuesday, February 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Department of Justice has been tossed into turmoil once again after Attorney General Bill Barr changed the sentencing recommendations for Trump ally Roger Stone. And after Barr gave an interview to ABC News saying that President Trump's constant tweets make it impossible for him to run the DOJ properly. Now, over 1,100 former DOJ officials are calling on Barr to resign. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this and also how the Democrats' focus is increasingly turning to Michael Bloomberg and the money he's pouring into the race for president. Next, we're learning about how the CIA and the NSA spied on both allies and enemies through a company they owned that made cryptography equipment. The company was called Crypto AG, and it sold encryption machines to countries like Iran, India, Pakistan, countries in Latin America, and even the Vatican. What none of the countries knew was that the machines had been rigged by the CIA so they could easily break the codes that countries used to send encrypted messages. It was one of the most audacious operations run by the CIA and provided a wealth of intelligence for the US. Greg Miller, reporter for the Washington Post, joins us for more on Operation Rubicon. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Public statements and tweets made about the department, uh, about uh, our people in the department, our, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases. Uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. The Justice Department has kind of been thrown for a loop again. Attorney General Bill Barr just recently told ABC News in an interview that the president's constant background commentary about the Justice Department makes it impossible for him to do his job. He says, I think it's time to stop tweeting about the Justice Department he opened up a lot about this. This comes after the uh, Justice Department overturned the sentencing recommendations for Roger Stone. Prosecutors had originally wanted seven to nine years, and then Bill Barr uh, stepped in and, and kind of rearranged all of that. Ginger, tell us what's going on with the Justice Department right now. That's right. We saw impeachment come to an end, but the issue not totally die, or at least some of the issues that have been surrounding President Trump. Roger Stone, who was found guilty on a number of charges, including lying to Congress and witness intimidation and obstructing an investigation. The prosecutors in that case recommended that he face seven to nine years in prison for that conviction. And then we saw the Justice Department come back and say, actually, no, we think it should be less time. And as you said, President Trump was tweeting his favorite means of communication that he thought that the seven to nine year recommendation was too harsh and praising the Justice Department for coming in, intervening and calling for a shorter sentence. Bill Barr, as you said, then kind of made the unusual step of coming out and publicly what appeared to be criticizing the president, saying that the tweets were not helping, that he should stop weighing in on such things and emphasizing that he had never been asked by Trump to lower that sentence. So President Trump then came back and said, well, I didn't ask, but I could if I wanted to. So a bit of a back and forth that then drew criticism, uh, particularly from Democrats, about the president's role with the Justice Department and how he's interacting with the agency. This is the second big time that Bill Barr has kind of been accused of politicizing the Department of Justice. You know, the first time was when the Robert Mueller report came out and, and he said, you know, the president's not guilty of anything here. So Bill Barr is kind of 
has a lot of questions to answer on this. The other thing is the practice of these, uh, you know, new investigations or reviews of and reinvestigations of things that have already been settled, getting a lot of different U.S. attorneys involved and looking back at old cases, things that might have been uh, that might be beneficial to the president politically. Um, you know, that's going around a lot, too. And, and it's gotten so crazy that there's now over eleven hundred former Department of Justice officials that have written a letter calling for Bill Barr's resignation. Uh, that's right. You know, the Department of Justice has always been in a tricky place. They are a cabinet agency. They are someone who's been appointed by the president. The president remains the attorney general's boss. They can fire them. But there has been some appearance of being kept at arm's length from the president in the past. And this isn't consistent. Obviously, presidents have called for their justice departments to more strictly enforce laws, to be more lenient in other cases. I mean, we saw Barack Obama talking about gun laws with his attorney general. So it's not like in the course of history, presidents haven't given instructions to their attorney generals and to their justice departments. The criticism we saw of President Trump uh, and Attorney General Barr after this one was that it was dealing with cases that were so directly tied to the president. Roger Stone is a friend of his, was an advisor of his for a number of years. You mentioned these other investigations or reinvestigations are things that have political ramifications for the president. And I think we see Bill Barr, who at times is trying to do what he thinks is right to calm and quiet criticism of his agency. You know, one would say that an investigation, even a reinvestigation, even an investigation of the president's political opponents has no harm if they haven't done anything wrong. Others would say that the mere opening of an investigation creates the appearance that they might have done something wrong and is politically slanted. Uh, so we're going to see this criticism and have no doubt we're going to be seeing this going into this election cycle where the president's supporters are going to be saying, look, this is what the Department of Justice should be doing. In fact, they haven't done enough to go after people they think committed wrongdoing, while opponents of the president are going to say Bill Barr and the president are politicizing this agency. Let's move to a little bit of Democratic politics, because as the race for the Democratic nomination heats up, all eyes are on Michael Bloomberg right now. Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are kind of the front runners just after the Iowa and New Hampshire uh, voting. But Mike Bloomberg is still running his campaign, spending millions and millions of dollars in advertising. And um, a lot of eyes are turning to him. Uh, one in particular, people have started calling out for his uh, use of social media influencers to post messages to make him look like the cool guy. Michael Bloomberg, at this point, we expect has spent over 300 million of his own dollars running for president. That number might be as large as four or 500 million at this point. He's doing this to sort of av avoid having to engage in the normal candidate practices like running a campaign in Iowa or New Hampshire or Nevada or South Carolina. That's going to change for Michael Bloomberg. One, we've seen just an increased amount of scrutiny of him and his campaign in the last week. As you mentioned, uh, stories about his use of social media, some criticism that he's paying influencers uh, to post things about his campaign, uh, which would seem to be sort of skirting the spirit of some of the rules about Facebook ads. And we expect him to qualify for the debate on Wednesday night in Nevada. So he will become not a guy on TV criticizing Donald Trump, but a guy on the debate stage running as a candidate, having to answer to criticism from his opponents. And that could really shift uh, the way people are viewing him. And it's going to have to shift uh, the way he engages in this race. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. What makes this story so extraordinary is we actually have the CIA's own internal history of this program, which traces it from its origin almost until its very end. And it lays it out in such detail that it identifies the CIA officers who were running it, the company executives who were entrusted to execute it, and then the countries that were exploited by it. Joining us now is Greg Miller, reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Greg. Sure. Happy to do this. You guys published a great piece about the CIA and how they were using sabotaged encryption equipment that it sold to foreign governments to essentially spy on them and find out a lot of very interesting information. There was a company called Crypto AG that was founded in the 40s that the CIA came to buy. And uh, as I said, then they started making the sabotage equipment and sold them so that they can use it to look into secret cables and transmissions of other governments. Tell us a little bit about the story and then how you guys came to find all this out. Yeah, one of the lines that we use in the story that I think really captures it well is that not only was the CIA taking these countries' money, but it was stealing their secrets. That's part of what makes this such an astonishing story of espionage, that for years there was this company in Switzerland that was one of the world's leading makers and sellers of encryption equipment for governments all over the planet. They buy these devices because they trust it and believe that these devices are going to protect their communications. And what none of them ever knows until now, literally now, is that this company was completely owned by the CIA in a secret partnership with the German intelligence agency, the BND. How we're learning about it is the CIA actually wrote its own history of what happened. And this is what you guys obtained at the Washington Post that you were able to write this story with. From time to time, we will learn about secret operations that the CIA has done, but we're almost always having to guess at the true dimensions of them or the full detail of how they work. What makes this story so extraordinary is we actually have the CIA's own internal history of this program, which traces it from its origin almost until its very end. And it lays it out in such detail that it identifies the CIA officers who were running it the company executives who were entrusted to execute it, and then the countries that were exploited by it. So it's really unusual, if not unprecedented to me, to see the entirety of an operation run by the CIA like this just laid bare and for us to have access to all of that. The program was codenamed both Rubicon and Thesaurus, but the length that this went on throughout, the deal with this company, Crypto AG, that they struck with the CIA started in 1951, and then the CIA bought them in the in the 70s, and the whole thing wasn't disbanded until 2018, just a couple of years ago. So tell us how it got done. Tell us about the machines and the encryption and how it was being sold to governments. I've never seen an operation like this have that kind of lifespan. I mean, to go on decade after decade after decade, I just can't think of anything that comes close to being comparable to it. And it starts in a very simple time, in a very crude device. It traces back to World War II, actually, when this Swedish inventor and entrepreneur comes up with a machine, a mechanical device for encrypting messages, and manages to get a big contract with the U.S. Army in World War II. That's his first big 
big break. You come out of the war with millions of dollars in cash from that contract and it sets themselves up as the company that is on the very leading edge of this brand new field, this encryption technology and devices to help countries preserve their secrets. And it just gets deeper and deeper as time goes on. So it starts, as you noted, in the 1950s with sort of handshake agreements between U.S. intelligence. In the 1960s, the CIA is actually paying this company hundreds of thousands of dollars to restrict its sales. Don't sell this country your best equipment. Sell them the bad stuff so that we can listen to them. And then it gets even deeper in the 70s when the CIA actually buys it and goes all in and starts actually designing the machines and rigging them intentionally with vulnerabilities so that U.S. spy agencies can crack the codes and expose dozens and dozens of countries' communications. I mean, at times they were making two models of whatever the encryption devices were, one so they could sell to the foreign governments they wanted to spy on, and one's for the U.S. and for allies. They had a completely split arrangement where they would have real, actual, functioning encryption machines with strong security coming off the factory floor, and those would go to the friendly countries. Those would go to the good guys in the U.S. view. And then you had all of these other ones that were intentionally sabotaged, and those were delivered throughout Latin America, throughout Africa, throughout the Middle East. How did the machines work? I know that once it got into the more circuit-based systems and the advances started coming, that's when the CIA really started designing the products themselves. And how did those work that they were able to kind of uh, cheat the system or help crack that pattern at least? So it's really fascinating how all of this works. I mean, the, the sort of details, the technical details are sometimes difficult to understand, but nevertheless fascinating. Early on, they were pretty crude devices. They were just boxes with a bunch of gears in it. A soldier would have to spin this dial on the front letter by letter to spell out messages. Every time you dial to a new letter, you pull a crank down and it spits out on a piece of paper in the back a different letter. You set up an A, you press the lever, it comes out a W and so forth. And then, you know, you have to send this message by Morse code and somebody else on the receiving end has to undo it using the same device set to the same settings. Of course, technology changes enormously over the lifespan of this company. So in the 1960s, these things are no longer just hand crank gear driven machines. They become electronic machines. And then ultimately, it's we're into the era of silicon chips and software. And that also helps to explain this company's kind of demise because you and I now carry cell phones in our pockets that have text apps and things that have far better encryptions than any of these guys dreamed of back right. in the 1950s and 60s. And so the struggle was always to keep up. The manual versions of these things were no longer really viable. And, you know, the way this all reads out is that this spying program was hugely successful. They said that it accounted for roughly 40% of all the intelligence interceptions of foreign governments that the U.S. had in the 80s and like 90% for the West German intelligence. And even from the CIA history, I thought this is really interesting, a sense of gloating. They said, imagine the idea of an American government convincing a foreign manufacturer to jimmy equipment in its favor. Talk about a brave new world. This is how happy they were with this program. That comes through in these documents. Of course, this is a CIA internal history. So they're doing this and they're bragging about their accomplishments here and they're casting it in the best possible light. What those documents don't do is sort of delve into some of the more ethically difficult questions that this program also raises. I mean, it's clear now that the United States, because of this operation, was able to listen in on what governments were doing all over the world, including 
governments that were engaged in horrific human rights abuses, death squads in Latin America and ethnic cleansing programs in other parts of the world. I mean, it raises a lot of new questions that we frankly couldn't answer in our story today. Well, what did the U.S. know in these cases and what did it do, if anything, to either stop or expose this sort of thing? You know, it's a complicated story and I think it's going to take some time to completely unravel. I would be really curious to see if there'd be any type of investigation, even going back to see what we knew and when we knew it and what we did just for more clarity on these types of programs and whatnot. One of the interesting parts was that the Soviet Union and China never purchased crypto AG's technology. So two very big countries that we dealt with, we really couldn't quote unquote spy on them in this sense. But there was a lot of other countries, I think at least 62 other countries that bought this that we were able to spy on. Any major story that we might know of, something that we were able to find out and something that we were able to have some type of action on that came through this program. Do we know of anything like that? Yeah, so the documents offer some glimpses into how this played out operationally at various times. They don't tell us a lot about recent years, but back in the 1980s and 1990s, the United States was relying on this capability over and over and over. We were listening to the Iranians throughout the Iran hostage crisis. We were able to confirm that Libya was responsible for the bombing of a disco in Berlin in 1986 that was designed to kill American servicemen. When the United States launched a manhunt for Emmanuel Noriega in Panama in the early 90s. They find him hiding in the Vatican embassy in Panama because the Vatican is using crypto machines. And the Americans are listening to the Vatican embassy talking with the Vatican in Rome about we have Noriega. He's come in here and he's taking refuge here. What are we supposed to do? Did any of these countries get suspicious at any point that they were being spied on, that their transmissions were being decrypted? Yeah, and to me, these are some of the most interesting stories that come out of the histories. Countries were constantly suspecting that there were problems with these devices, and yet they were constantly talked out of those suspicions and kept buying them. Iran, in particular, was highly suspicious over many years. They even arrested a crypto salesman and put him in jail for nine months and interrogated him. He had no idea he was selling rigged equipment to that government. And also, almost all of the company's employees were deceived. Only the top executives knew the truth, that this was a company owned and being run by U.S. intelligence agencies. The rest of the workers, many of them became suspicious at various times, but they could never prove anything. This happened over the course of many decades and obviously a long time ago now. Any sense of the money that was made off of a project like this. I know later on towards the end, it really was just more of an intelligence program that they were funding rather than a company. But do we know any type of possible profits or anything that were made off of this? The documents talk about how many years this company would generate significant profits. The Germans would do all the bookkeeping. They'd split up the cash and literally deliver it to CIA people in an underground parking garage. They would hand over sacks of money. And the CIA used this money to buy other companies that are not identified in these documents. So the operation sort of expanded and grew. But we have to keep it in perspective. We're talking about millions of dollars here, but that is really kind of loose change for U.S. spy agencies whose annual budgets now are well past $50 billion. It's a great story. There's tons of details we could not get to right now, so I suggest everybody go out and read it. The article on the Post was called The Intelligence Coup of the Century. Greg Miller, reporter for The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at 
Haley Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.